This is Tell Me What to Read, the podcast of booktopia.com.au. I'm Nick Wasiliev and I'm thrilled to bring you three special interviews this week. Kicking us off, we got to sit down with Q Van Kleilenberg, founder of The Resilience Project and author of Let Go. Then I sat down with ABC journalist Paul Kennedy to discuss his brand new memoir, Funky Town. And lastly, I also got the chance to chat with acclaimed photographer Paul Barbera, covering his new book, Where They Per. Now over to our interview with Hugh Van Kleilenberg, author of Let Go. My name is Nick Wasiliev, and I'm delighted to be joined by Hugh Van Kleilenberg discussing his new book, Let Go, on Tell Me What to Read. Hugh, welcome. So to start us off, give us your essential pitch for your new book, Let Go. I, I guess for me, I like after I did the first book, after I did the first one, I, I kind of penguin random house were pretty excited and said, Oh, can we do, you know, get another one? And I said, No, I, I definitely don't. Like I'm that's it, I'm done. And that's I've told you, I've told you all my stories, that's everything. Um, and they kept sort of not pestering, but just saying, just if there's anything you think of, write stuff down, anything that might I kept saying, I, I've got nothing. Like, I've actually got nothing for you. Um, and then when the COVID hit, my commitments to the world, like, I've just, I was doing TV interview after TV interview, radio interview after radio interview, um, telling people how to cope in a challenging time. And all the while, I felt like, this is not an elevator pitch, obviously. <laughs> and, all the, <laughs> uh, and all the while, I... I noticed there's some things that weren't quite right. Like I was getting really angry. I was getting angry, like, and I, I never get angry ever. Um, like I was getting angry at my kids. Like the people I love most in, in my life, my wife, my kids, I'm angry at them. I'm like, this is weird. What's, I didn't quite understand what's going on though. And then um, I had had an hour and a half sleep one night because my daughter doesn't sleep ever. And I was doing an interview with Dave Hughes on his um, drive show in Sydney um, from Melbourne. So I don't know what the show is, but um and at the end of the interview, he said, um, uh, and how are you going? Are you okay? And I just I just blurted out and said, uh, I said, no, I'm totally and utterly broken. <laughs> and then I kind of went like, well, I covered my mouth like, oh, my God, what have I just said? Like, that's not good for my brand. <laughs> um, and then I kind of, I went inside and told my wife. Um, and it was amazing. The second I said, I'm not okay and, and I need to sort this out, I just felt so much better. As in, it didn't fix everything, but I was like, oh, like I, I, at that point, I stopped getting angry. Like I was like, I'd conceded that, you know, I, I, and I wasn't, I have to be very clear, I'm very lucky. I've never had depression, anxiety, any of that kind of stuff. And I still didn't, but I wasn't in a good place. Um, and so, yeah, that was the point that, um, uh, yeah, I decided that I, I needed to, 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 to get help and I saw a therapist and that was the, that was the, you know, I learned so, I'm, two years of therapy than I did in my having my entire life about resilience and that's and that's when I called Penguin Random House and said uh, I think I might have a book <laughs> uh, well I'll tell you, tell you the other thing was I actually I kept a journal by my um like in the study and at night when the kids are going to bed and Penny going to bed I'd just write what I'd learned about myself and and, uh, and I kept hiding so like oh my god no one can find this and then um, and then as lockdowns went on and continued to just like strangle the human spirit basically i just thought no do you know what i think i need to share this because i reckon i'm not the only one battling with this stuff and that's kind of that's kind of how it happened i guess how can be how awesome that you like uh 
that you kept a journal. I love that. that well, I recorded that. every session. I, mean, I recorded, I did got a, took a voice memo every session we did. And then I wrote notes and then at night I'd listen to the session again and then I'd write notes again. And then I remember I was so like I was I was studying a study of myself kind of like and I remember thinking if I'd been this attentive when I was at uni, God knows what I'd be doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'd imagine it would have been a very when you real uh, when you kind of had that moment when you realised you weren't doing all right, revisiting all of that stuff, um, that journal and all of those voice notes and stuff must have been even more of an eye opener experience or because maybe you didn't realize did you not realize like when you when you were looking at that stuff and looking back at it that did suddenly something just snap and make sense and once you had that kind of moment of like realization of whoa i actually am not okay well the the, the i'm not okay came first that was a couple of months before i started seeing a psychologist because that's what made me think i need to see a psychologist so i spent a couple two months then um yeah, trying to find a psychologist. So that was quite difficult. But then when I found one, then it was from there, that point on, it was like, you know, just every session I have there, I was like, oh my God, this person's a genius. This is just amazing. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, um, yeah, sorry, that wasn't very clear there. That was the order. So had the moment of like, I'm not coping. And then two months later, I started, oh no, about six weeks later, I started therapy. Yeah, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about therapy. Um, I think, you know, some people, you know, try to, to put the, the mentality of, oh, just, you know, toughing it out and stuff like that and being okay. Um, and you had written, you know, like in the past that, you know, about not seeing a therapist yourself, you know, despite mm. that you'd recommended it to people for years. Um, how was it, what was it actually like uh, going through the actual process you know, that kind of, because you, you kind of touched on it with the catalyst of, you know, seeking help yourself. Um, yeah. What did, what was the actual experience like of actually sitting down with a therapist and going through uh, how you were feeling at that time? Oh, it's unbelievable. I, and I hadn't done it ever because I thought, oh, I'm not going to do that. I don't need that kind of help. I quite literally had been so busy doing presentation after presentation after presentation. Whenever someone came up to me and said, I'm struggling, I'd say, well, I'm not a psychologist. You need to see a psychologist. Um, and I was always sort of um, telling him to do that. But I, I was like, yeah, one day I'll do it. One day I'll definitely do it. But I've just felt so happy for such a long time. I was like, it's not, it, this is not urgent. Like, it's not an urgent thing to do. And, um, and then, yeah, I think it was, I mean, if it wasn't for COVID, I wouldn't have seen a therapist. And if it wasn't for seeing a therapist, I wouldn't have sorted out so much shit that I had in my life that I didn't realise it was kind of holding me back. Like, there was just so many things that, I was kind of like, I felt like I was kind of going through life with a bit of a handbrake on um, and seeing her was like letting go of all the stuff that she got to let go of. It's kind of like I was able to release a handbrake and just, and I just felt so much better ever since. I want to ask you about um, vulnerability because you talk about it a lot in this book. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, and it's interesting that you talk about that first moment when, you know, when you were live on air and you were saying like, no, I feel, yeah. I feel broken as hell. And and your first initial reaction was to kind of just rail back and be like, okay, whoa, I just was actually quite vulnerable there for a second. And it is a strain. And I think it is something that I think a lot of people struggle to come to terms with. For you, kind of going on this experience, um, I'm imagining that it would, that vulnerability is now such a, it becomes such an invaluable part of just the functioning of you, the, the human. It, why, why is it so important in terms of, you know, achieving emotional strength and achieving resilience yeah well it's it's um so emotional vulnerability i've tried to define it very simply in the book as taking just any emotional risk that you can take um and so 
the reason it's it's important for human beings is that the research says that's what that's what connects us um and connection is so so important I mean, as many people would argue it's the main is the main component of having good mental health is good authentic connection with people and community around you um and without vulnerability one of the football clubs i work with they're not a very vulnerable group of guys um, they'll connect through taking the piss out of each other a lot um and in doing that when they turn up to the club they kind of have their guard up a bit like they've got their armor up like they need to armor up because they're going to cop it about something um and there's no vulnerability whatsoever so everyone walks around with their guard up like just waiting to deflect whatever's coming their way and they they're, they're not a very well connected group and i'm working on that currently at the moment it's very hard um but uh when you are just able to be yourself and, and confident enough to be yourself and to make yourself vulnerable to be seen as you are as you are like as as you are as a person um you open yourself up to to genuine authentic connection yeah it, i do agree i think the that openness is invaluable and i think i definitely agree with you that guys struggle with it especially mm. um why do you think in in your experience why do you think it is more difficult traditionally for blokes to to express that vulnerability not necessarily to say that I've, it's been interesting kind of looking at the space particularly blokes talking to other blokes is yeah. they find particularly difficult why do you think that that's the case uh well i think traditionally to go to the study question traditionally for a lot of men it's it's changing that it's definitely shifting but the men who are out in the world right now their dads when they cried when they're upset their dads would say stuff like come on grow up don't cry don't be a girl that kind of stuff and so we would oh, i was very lucky my dad didn't do that but for a lot of men the majority of men was like well, the way society dealt with with boys when they're upset was just like come on grow up don't be a bit and i said don't be a girl be a man and you go okay i need to be a man i want to be i, I don't want to yeah I, I want to be strong and be a man and so i won't and so we don't go there we just it's too it's um just from a young age we were taught that was not the way like i've got a five-year-old right now and i'm just watching him and you know we're all as little boys we're so emotional like we're so emotional and so we get so upset so easily and it's such a such an important stage of his development how i respond to him crying right now like you know i'm able to say stuff to him like let's have a big cuddle like you cry so good to cry and like i love how you cry when you're sad that's really good but i can see how if i said to him right now don't cry um grow up um toughen up i can see how that would have a seriously life-changing impact on him i can just see it and so i think a lot of men who are out there in the world right now and uh, that's the way they're brought up but I, it, it is changing definitely because because we're all hearing stuff like this there's a lot of books out there about this stuff and there's a lot of people talking about it so it is shifting there is been we've been lucky lucky kind of in this role to talk with the you know mm-hmm. a lot of people who uh whether they be male or female who kind of are writing books and doing discussions around this and they are seeing change happening online which i think is so per- um so awesome you have you're seeing mm-hmm. blokes actually be prepared to say hey look i'm not doing okay um yeah totally i do want to ask about you know you have this moment that moment when you realize you were not okay and obviously you you you've gone through that process of kind of working on yourself um and i hope that coming you know to, as we we sit here right now that you you're coming to a, a you are at a a better point of you know emotional um 
you know, clarity and calmness. Um, do, is there always an end point or for you, does it always feel like that, that it's a constant stage of just, so some people just go, mm -hmm. oh, my aim is to get from point A of feeling terrible to get to point B of not feeling terrible. Is there, a, do you, what, where's your kind of stance on that from having, you know, first written this book and then, you know, gone yeah. through this experience? Is it, a, is it a sense of, have you arrived at a sense of calmness and, uh, and clarity yet? Or no, is it always just no. a case of self-working, working on yourself? No, 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 it's not at all. I, so the last we spent, the book is written and then we, we had like, I honestly had a month of like, how do I finish this thing? Um, and I ended up, so the final chapter is just, is all about the fact that, um, so I remember once, one of my one of my latest sessions with my psych, I just said, I just feel like my life's so messy. I've done all this stuff. Like I've let go of all these things. I still feel like things are so messy. And she said, Hugh, the year and a half of chatting to you, what I've realised about you, and she said, and everyone, by the way, is that your life has always been messy. Um, but it's what you do when you're in the mess that really counts. Um, and it made me realise that, like, oh, I think life, certain components of life get hard just get harder and harder and harder some things get much easier like you i feel like you become a lot more comfortable with who you are the older you get like oh, this is the most comfortable i've been with myself ever but then other things get really really hard like you you um um yeah some things just become harder and harder and harder like my issues i have with the expectation to be you know to always be a source of joy and light for everyone around me that's an expectation I put on myself. My sister got sick, so I felt it was my job to make everyone happy. Um, I've had that very hard to let go of. And, it, and at times, that's like been my, well, it's been my doing many times, but that's the one thing I continue to struggle with all the time. And so, um, yeah, it, we, we never, we, we never, it's never like we arrive at a destination of I've made it and I'm happy. Like there's always something we're struggling with. And I, and I feel like having kids has opened me up to a whole new world of that struggle and that like, like I have no fucking idea what I'm doing. Like I, I love them so much and I try so hard. And I've read every book there is to read about um, parenting, but my God, it's hard. It is just, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. So because of that, my life is the messiest it's ever been right now. Um, and I, I shudder to think how hard, how much harder it would be if I hadn't let go of all the stuff that my therapist had told me to let go of. Yeah, I think it is always a stage, a case of processing, particularly as well if you're, you know, when you when you are at that stage when you do have kids and suddenly it's, it's the start of, of a different sort of life. It's like the mm. other-centred life where yeah, they totally, are at the centre totally. of everything. Um, totally. It, I do, I do want to ask you a little bit more about this book because there's a wonderful chapter in it that I personally enjoyed, which is how you talk about uh, a dinner that you had with uh, with Missy Higgins. Um, oh, <laughs> which is it's it's a, such a lovely chapter and can, can you just can you share what you learned from that, well, that was, with her yeah well that was my that was um that was before I was seeing a therapist and so I my so there were so many things happening so Missy and I hit it off really well through um we got to know each other sort of 2000 19 and hit it off really well and we became really good mates and then we became our families became i realized that our kids are the same age and i get on with their husband really well and she gets my wife really well we just got really well so we we said we'd have them over for we decided to have them over for what was it? it was drinks in the afternoon we thought we're drinks in the afternoon so we and i all the things that i hadn't yet processed with my therapist like my expectation to make everyone around me just have the best time possible and then my perfection like i just want everything to be 
perfect. And so I was like, this is going to be a perfect afternoon. And unfortunately, we planned it two or three weeks out. So I had two or three weeks to plan how this is going to be. That's perfect. And I'm like, you know, we spent we spent a long time working out what music you play when Missy Higgins come over. Like, we really agonise over what, like, you have to get that right, I reckon. Like, you don't want to, she, like, I in my head, I'm like, if I play the wrong music, she's like, maybe I'm not this good. Maybe I'm not. I mean, the, the background is like, uh, Missy Higgins is probably my favorite, one of my favourite artists of all time. So that was why I was so excited as well. But um, I, yeah, so we spent ages trying to work out the playlist. That was that was the first thing. And and, um, and we settled on some like really chilled like playlists from, from Spotify, I can't remember. But then we went to, um, I was like, oh, we'll get it. We'll also, um, I'll get it, like, it was winter. So I was like, I'll get a fire pit and I'll just we'll have a fire. I'll just really relax, have a few beers around the fire, listen to good music and, it's going to be great. It's going to be so relaxed. And, and then uh, the kids will get on well and we'll just, yeah, I'll post up a few hours. It'll be great. And everything, just every single thing went wrong. Like, and it started with, it started with her turning up. I think it was like half an hour early and I just wasn't, we weren't ready. And I just panicked and I just threw all these logs and kindling in the fire pit and just lit the fire, went out, like got them, brought them in. <laughs> and then we went and I said, oh, do you want to go have some beers around the fire? And they're like, uh, are the kids going to be okay around the fire pit? And I went, uh, and I was in my head, I was like, fuck, I haven't thought about this at all. But yeah, they'll be fine. And there's like, they're, they're two two-year-olds. They were so fascinated by the fire. They were trying to walk towards it, like reach in and grab it. And I was like, I'm so weird. Next thing I know, we're standing around like goalkeepers trying to stop the kids getting into the fire. And we finally managed to get them, coerce them over to the, uh, to corral them over to the trampoline. But and we're sitting, I was like, good, okay, this is, this is how I pictured it. The four adults sitting around the fire drinking and then kids are on the trampoline. This is good, we've got this. And then this smell, this horrific smell uh, and I knew straight away what it was, but I was like, oh, please go away, please go away. And then Dan, Mrs. Husband, goes, uh, is something on fire? And I knew what it was. And he goes, I think you're turf. So we, had, we had synthetic turf. And I just put the, the the bowl of fire on top of synthetic turf. He goes, I think it's your turf. And I went, nah, I don't think so. And Missy goes, no, it definitely is. And then all of a sudden, like, fucking, like the lawn's on fire, like our synthetic turf, and it's just melting away around the side of the fire. And it's just like, it was just like murking its way away from the fire. Like it was, it was almost like it was lava spreading across the. So we had to get these big buckets of water, just throw it all over the fire. And it was like this noxious, like it was just like this awful steam and smoke just going all over the back. We had to all run inside to escape the fumes. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, what a disaster that was. And when I was like, I was pretty down to myself, like going, such an Now we actually can't go outside. Like we actually can't go. It's too dangerous for the kids because of all those like fumes that are going. It looked like the whole house on fire. But yeah, got inside and then Benji and Sammy, um, their, their kids and, and my son went upstairs and Benji went to use the toilet. <laughs> and Sam went in with him. He's like, I'll help you. I've just learned how to use the toilet. I'll help. I was like, oh, this is weird. And they went in there and they locked the door. And I was like, are you guys right there? And then like, Sammy's like, yeah, I'm just helping. I've just learned how to do this. So I'm helping. I could hear him saying stuff like, is it out yet? And he's like, no, no, it's coming. And he goes, you just keep pushing. It's going to come. Keep pushing. And so he's like literally coaching Benji through it. I was like, oh my God. So I like went downstairs and told everyone there. I was laughing. I was like, oh, it's actually quite funny. But I went back upstairs and they couldn't work out how to unlock the door from the inside. And they started to panic and we couldn't get them out. And I was like, oh my God, the boys are stuck in there. And they really panicked. Uh, inside, I was internally, I was panicking more because I was like, it's actually quite a hard lock to get out. They're going to be, I don't know how, it's a big brand new door. I'm like, I don't know how, like, do we like, smash open the door? I don't know, is it going to knock them over? Like, in the end, it took about, I don't know, 20 minutes of panic and managed to get them out. And then they went down. And then I was like, okay, good. That's done with. We can just relax inside. So I the couch. I was like, we're relaxing. And then there's just thing after thing went wrong. We found ourselves in the garage playing with the boys. And then 
Luna, their youngest one, knocked on the door and I opened the door and just smashed her right in the nose and, like, she went flying backwards and cried for, like, half an hour. And, and I was just like, this whole thing's a disaster. They stayed for so long. And I was like, why are they still here? This is just a fucking disaster. And I ended up leaving at, at like, 8 o'clock at night or something. And um, oh, that's why we couldn't get Sammy in the car. He took off down the street because he didn't want to leave. And it's just, a, I was like, I said to Penny, fuck, oh, that was a disaster. Um, and then she so, yeah, goes, that wasn't your best day, was it? I said, no, it wasn't. And I remember thinking, we'll never see him again. Missy sent me the longest message that night. It was a beautiful message about how much they loved it. And I was like, what? It was a disaster. But it took me a while to realise that it was, it was like the imperfections of the whole day that made it so wonderful. And it was such a, it was such a, um, it was such a lovely reminder for me or such a lovely moment for me to realise that like, like we're all imperfect, life's imperfect and it's the imperfections that really truly connect us in life. And that's what we need to embrace more rather than trying to make sure everything's perfect because nothing's perfect, especially not in my life. <laughs> it's such a great story. It's such oh, a great you. story in all the right ways. And I know I know it would have probably been like her like terrifying to um terrifying to go through because obviously you're being the host and wanting to make sure everything was great. But it's it's I think it's a story that so many people will love reading this book. Well, well I, thank you. But I actually sent it to Missy to before the book came out to say, Hey, just checking your call with all this before I put it in the book. And she said, I don't remember any of that stuff happening. She goes, Oh, Dan, oh yeah, no. Oh, that's right. Yeah, there was that. Yeah, I forgot about the smoky stuff. Yeah, what was the toilet thing? She just like they'd actually forgotten. It's funny, like we build up those things in our heads so much. Like, oh, this is so bad. Often people don't even notice. Like Missy forgot all that stuff. She's like, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was quite funny. <laughs> yeah, it, and I think that's that's kind of hilarious because at the end of the day, it's it, it, we often kind of worry about how we'll be perceived and everything around that. But at the end, it, but just having those moments together, it, even if it, everything goes wrong, it's still can be a huge totally. amount of fun. Totally, yeah. yeah. I've got one kind of last question for you, which is talking about kind of, you have talked a lot about um, social media and the space of social yeah. media. And yeah, particularly, yeah. And, and it's funny that we have talked about, you know, perceptions and stuff, because obviously, you know, the impact of social media on, on self-perception is very interesting. Mm. Um, in your eyes, and, I, and I'm going to put you on the spot with this question a little bit, um, what is one method you think that people can use immediately to kind of you know start changing their relationship with their social media well the one i've used so i'm in canberra at the moment i've i've, I've got i spoke last night at, a, at a, the theater and then i've got another one tonight and when i'm away in a hotel um by myself no family around social media becomes a real issue for me like i just i I look back on the amount of time I've spent sitting in a hotel room just scrolling through Instagram or or whatever it is. In fact, it's mainly just Instagram. And I, I always so the most common emotion you get after 10 minutes on social media apparently is regret. And so and that makes sense. Like I've never spent 20 minutes on Instagram and gone, shit, that was good. <laughs> you know, like I've never once sat there and gone, God, that was just so, such a great way to spend. I always regret it. And so what I what I'm doing right now, and this isn't in the book, but what I'm doing right now for social media is I'm just I'm deleting it. I've deleted the apps that I'm most addicted to from my phone and I only check them through um, my laptop. And so that means I don't take my laptop everywhere I go. So um, I will check it, but then they're not, it's, it's clunky. Like the, the operating system's clunky on your laptop. It doesn't, you can't check messages properly. It's, it doesn't flow properly. So the experience isn't as easy to get. It's, it's harder to go down a rabbit hole, rabbit hole on your laptop. So I'll check it for, I'll probably, in fact, it's so clunky that 
it's five minutes. It's kind of like, ah, oh, this is shit. And so you'll spend about five minutes. So that's that's what I'm doing right now in my life is I've, I've deleted them all from my phone and I'm just checking on my laptop and messaging people back to my laptop. And um, so that's what I'm doing now. But the, I mean, what I wrote about in the book was just, it's a bigger thing. It's just identifying the activity that you love so much. It's an activity you're really good at. So Nick, for you, it might be writing. It's probably writing. For me, I don't know. It's, it's probably running, I think. Or maybe, yeah, probably running. Um, but when you're doing that activity, you reach a state of flow where there's no, you just, if time becomes irrelevant, if someone said, how long have you been doing this for? You'd say, I actually couldn't tell. I don't know. Um, I, this is just, I'm not sure. Or if someone says, what are you thinking about? You'd say, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not thinking this is just happening. Have a think about what the activity is and make time for it in your week. Just because when you're doing that, you feel validated you feel loved you feel like you belong somewhere and that's why we go to social media ultimately like that's why we're going there because we just we're seeking validation we're seeking some love but it doesn't count it doesn't work through social media so have a think about the activity you're really good at and get stuck into it i know i could definitely use that advice (laughs) (laughs) um thank you so much it's uh it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you hugh So for all of our listeners, Let Go is published by Penguin Random House and uh, you can get a copy of it right now from booktopia.com.au. Now on to our interview with Paul Kennedy. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. My name is Nick Wasiliev, and for today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Kennedy. He's an ABC journalist, and he's here today to talk to us about his brand new memoir of him growing up in the southern suburbs of Melbourne, in Frankston specifically, Funky Town. Paul, welcome. Um, Tell us a little bit about uh, your new memoir, Funky Town. Funky Town is my story from 1993. That was the year that I was trying to finish high school and uh, going up, going through all these, um, you know, these uh, sort of strange moments that you do when you're finishing high school, uh, trying to achieve but um, not really getting where I needed to be at school. It was also Funky Town is the name that we had for Frankston, which is where I lived. So Frankston's an hour from the city. Back then it was right on the edge of the urban sprawl. Um, the urban sprawl's uh, far surpassed that now, but, but Frankston's still relatively the same. It's, uh, it's a place that I loved growing up in um, and I've spent most of my life here, but uh, one of the nicknames we had for it was Funky Town. And that's mainly from people who live here, who can, um, who, who, and my little sister used to call it Funky Town with a, a, a cheeky grin, because we all know what Frankston is. Um, and for us, it was a great place. At that time, though, it was uh, a really scary uh, time with um, a serial killer on the loose, a serial killer who murdered three women. All through that winter, police came in great numbers, record numbers. Uh, the national media came to Frankston for the first time and, and uh, we were in that whirlpool of, um, of fear and frustration and uh, town meetings and trying to work out how we could live through this period. But uh, the streets were empty and um, there were a lot of people really uh, paralysed by the fear of it all. So that's the backdrop and and the rest of it is my story, trying to navigate not only school, but also trying to make it into the AFL. Yeah, this is is such a fascinating book and your journey over the course of it is, you know, especially fascinating. Um, 
I feel like now, cause it, 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 I don't want to kind of put, I feel like it's bad to say it's because I feel like it puts the book in a box somewhat, but it feels like eerily similar in terms of that kind of time where people were scared all over the place. It feels eerily similar to, or not, not able, not people not wanting to go outside. It feels eerily similar to right now. Yeah. Um, why was now the right time to revisit this particular chapter um, in your own life? Yeah, that's a great point, actually. When I was writing the majority of the book uh, in its final draft, I was in lockdown and it did feel the same um, as 1993 with those empty streets and uh, frustration and, and people scared and uncertain about what was going to happen. Um, you know, the, the pandemic in its first stages felt like that's that time when the serial killer was in Frankston. Um, the, the timing for me was... Um, I'd written my fourth book about five years ago and I wanted to write this book. I'd wanted to write this book for a long time, but it felt like a good time. It explores uh, themes of boys becoming men and masculinity. Uh, and, and that's a big discussion everywhere now, which is a really good thing. And I felt like if I could visit and, and discuss those themes through my own, my own experiences, that might be helpful. And the other, reason it's timely i think is because um you know i'm thinking more and more about those decisions i made as, a, as an adolescent as a teenager and i've got three sons and you know i've got uh, i have great trepidation waiting for them to hit that mark of, of 16 17 when when they will start looking for other role models and they'll start uh you know being uh, pulled into the male culture around them and that's what happened to me and so uh, you know, I, I, I am, uh, I've got no idea how they're going to navigate that, but I, f I felt like it might be helpful for me to tell my story and express, uh, you know, tell them about my mistakes and, and my failures and um, without being too judgmental and without, um, you know, hitting anyone over the head with, uh, with my thoughts on what they should do with their life. It, it's my experience and, and those things are really important to discuss about um, suppressing our emotions and uh, re rejecting or disparaging uh, what boys see to be as feminine, uh, which is you know being creative and wanting to find love and, and all of those things, which which I dearly wanted to do at that time, but couldn't really express that. And, and instead, I, I I was a binge drinker and I um, I embraced this this um, this lifestyle of of getting into fights and all those sorts of things. So. The, the timing, I think, was had to do a little bit with my sons, but also I've always wanted to write the book and, and I thought um, I couldn't wait any longer. Yeah, it, it felt... It, it, there's something about this that feels really, really timely because um, I think discussions around masculinity and such are, are becoming an increasingly uh, relevant topic, especially in the current times that, that we're in now. Um, you know, there's in, in the age of, you know, 2021... Um, mental health is something that is such a, a, an important topic. It's been thrust kind of front and centre by the, by the pandemic, I think. Um, people are talking about it a lot more, the impact that it has a lot more. Um, was that something that was always kind of a main goal going forward with this, with this document? Was that, or did you start by thinking, I need to, to kind of tell my own story about, about my relationship with the mental health challenges that I experienced during this time? Or did it just kind of emerge as you were putting it down on the page? 
yeah, I I knew when I started to write my story that um, I, I wanted people to be able to understand the themes as their own. So the, the book is, I didn't write the book because I think my life has been extraordinary or, or even my my uh, 18th year on earth was, was extraordinary. I, I wrote it because I think it's actually really common for people to, to feel the way I did as, as a boy. And that's, um, you know, that's with that false bravado that I got around with. And, um, you know, these, it's a stifling way to, um, to be a teenager. I had great friends through that time. So there, there wasn't, although I went through a, a range of emotions, I just, I thought I, this was pretty normal. And, and uh, you know, I had a, had a lot of fun. I was playing football for the Stingrays team, um, which was that representative under 18 team. And I was having great experiences. I played at the MCG. I always wanted to do that. And in the end, I, I didn't play anywhere near, near as uh, well as I had dreamed I might. But, you know, I, 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 uh, I was having some good times along the way. Uh, but certainly the, um, the, the bad choices that I made were to do with uh, not being able to express myself. So that, that is a theme that runs through the book and, and absolutely deliberately because... I think that's um, I think that's a, a really common thing for seventeen-year-olds to feel, um, male or female, and that the feedback has been that a lot of people are, are reading the book and thinking to themselves that he's writing about me or he's writing about my brother or sister or um, my son or daughter. So um, that's really pleasing, and, and that was uh, absolutely something that I set out to achieve was to to share my story um, with. The, the different sort of pitfalls that we all go through. That's the best. I think that's the best compliment you can get when you when you've written oh, something yeah. that when you've written something that people feel they connect with on a personal level, yeah. no matter the context or the background. I think so that's can't ask for much more than that. No, I love that. Yeah. Um, speaking of this this particular time, you said it was a, a tough time in your life, and I love that you talk about a, a teacher mm. um, in this book who you know you quoted in, in kind of the description for this book that this teacher saw you heading down the wrong path and that they tried to kind of put you on the right path. Um, looking back, how do you feel that moment of context? Like, do, How do you feel about that moment of context and relationship with that teacher in terms of, do, do you think it set you on a path to where you are today? Or do you think, uh, how significant is that relationship for you looking back at it now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had, a, I, I had a lot of good teachers along the way in primary school and high school. I was really lucky in that regard as well. I had a beautiful family. I had uh, great teachers. So there were no shortage of people in my life that were trying to um, help me uh, go from childhood to adulthood and, and, um, and lead a good life. But there was one teacher who made a, a big difference to me in my life, Mrs Mack. She gave me a book called I Heard the Owl Call My Name. And looking back and writing the book, I can really pinpoint that as a significant moment for me because I, was, I wasn't a big reader growing up. I, I would like to say, you know, as an author and as a journalist of 25 years, I would like to tell you that, you know, I, I was reading Dickens at uh, 10 and 11, but I wasn't a big reader. I used to read schools' uh, texts. So I'd read To Kill a Mockingbird and... Uh, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I've read some great books, but all in class and only when I was made to. 
And Mrs. Mack gave me this book and said, I think you'll like this. And it was I Heard the Owl Call My Name by Margaret Craven. It was, uh, it's a beautiful book, as many people know. It's a classic. Um, it's something I wouldn't have chosen for myself about a, a religious minister who goes to live in a, an in, with an Indigenous tribe in British Columbia uh, to learn enough about life that he's ready to die because he's terminally ill. Never in my wildest dreams would I have looked twice at this book, but when she gave it to me and, and she was a very influential person in my life, I read it and I can distinctly remember the words and the sentences in that story um, causing me to feel a, a sense of electricity and, and uh, this great excitement and um, just that, this great satisfaction from reading this beautiful, beautiful story that I could only ever get through playing football. So I thought, well, if, if this makes me feel as good as, you know, playing footy, then, then I'll keep reading. So reading's been a big part of my life ever since. And, uh, and that, was, that was really um, due in a large part to Mrs Mack giving me that book and being a great literature teacher in my VCE years. But it was a bit more than that because Mrs Mack was the one that suggested I get into journalism. And so... Um, so when I was, my high school days were, uh, were falling apart around me and I ended up getting expelled for, for an incident um, uh, on the night before mark-up day and ended up in, in police custody. Uh, the, the seed had already been sown for me to maybe try journalism. And then I tried to get a cadetship at the end of the year and failed that as well. But um, it, after, and this is not in the book because it finishes at the end of 1993, after that, I went back and, and kept trying and, um, and gave it my all and eventually became a copy kid in a newsroom and that's how my journalism started. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of the seeds of, of my life, as it's turned out, um, for good or ill, is, uh, was, was in year 12. Yeah, it's, I kind of am curious to know what, what was the key like, message or the learning that you got from that because often I think there's that life message or that life uh, realization or that significant moment that you get from a specific experience. What do you think that? What do you think that was for you in that particular moment? Uh, the the experience with I heard the alcohol my name particularly was, um, and I I tracked down Mrs Mack after many years and asked her why she gave me that book, and she said I could see that you were showing some signs of self destruction, and I said really, and she said. Yes, and she gave me that book, she said, because she wanted to show me that there were other ways to be a man. And by that, um, she meant that uh, the character in this book, Brian, who's, uh, who was the, the minister, um, and, the, and the other characters, uh, parts of the, uh, of the community that he moved to in British Columbia. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, those people were gentle, they were generous, they were patient. Um, and, and they were really caring and, you know, not at all in, in the way that I was starting to carry on as a 17-year-old. So uh, absolutely, she, she knew better than me um, how to, uh, to show me that type of, of man. And, you know, I wanted not only did I finish wanting to sort of be a, a little bit uh, gentler and, and more loving and, you know, patient and all the rest of it, but I actually finished the book thinking, wouldn't it be great if I could one day write a book like Margaret Craven or somewhere half as good? So the writing was also something that 
that uh, I was developing at that stage and, and wanting to be a writer. And so yeah, I, I could I could draw a, um, a direct line back to then as well. That's you know because why did I want to be a journalist? I wanted to write stories for a living, and that was due to the influence of, of the English department of my school and Mrs. Mack in particular. I want to ask you a little bit about uh, revisiting this particular time in Frankston. I know we were we were talking about this before we we started recording, um, but you mentioned that. You know, this happened during the backdrop of, of these murders that you mm. speak about in the book. Um, and you, you, I found it so fascinating that you mentioned that, uh, that people in Frankston have, still haven't kind of forgotten it. It hasn't really changed that much, which I find so funny because, mm. you know, we live in a time of fast connection and fast, you know, things are always changing uh, in, in the internet age. And it's, it's interesting that, that this still feels the same to you. What was it like revisiting this particular historical period of time um, in Frankston? Yeah. Uh, going back to 1993 was, was really interesting to me. In fact, I went to the local library, Frankston Library, and, and went back through all of the, um, all of the newspapers of the time and, and read them all again. And because you had, in writing a memoir, I think it's helpful if you can measure your memories against... Uh, some documents of the past and and I was lucky my mum never threw anything out so um, all of the things that I write about in the book um, have almost got that evidence still there so um, but my memories were strong and the, the other part of of writing this book was I was was in a lockdown last year um, writing a fair bit of and rewriting a fair bit of the book and so one of the things you could do in lockdown one of the few things was go for walks and so I was living in the same suburb and still live in that same suburb where I grew up on the, on the outskirts of Melbourne. And when I went walking, I was walking past crime scenes from 1993. And I was, uh, you know, walking through the, the tea tree of the local beach. And I was walking past uh, landmarks that I still had, had been writing about for Funky Town. So that, those times reminded me that, you know, that, it hasn't changed all that much. And, uh, you know, it's 28 years ago. Those, that, that, that murderous spree feels like yesterday. It doesn't, doesn't feel so long ago. But also the place that I'm, that I'm still living in doesn't feel like 28 years ago. It's, uh, and maybe it's because occasionally, I'll, or more than occasionally, I'll, I'll bump into people on the street that I grew up with. And so, you know, people that still live here and my family still lives here and, you know, hardly anyone moves away because uh, it's such a lovely place. But um, the other thing is that I was looking through those newspapers and reading uh, editorials, really, really strong and, and brilliant editorials about uh, violence against women. And we live in a suburb where the first Neighbourhood Watch was founded some decades ago. And the discussion around it's not safe for women to go out at night and, and they should be doing this and they should be doing that. That was discussed uh, in a big way and debated in 1993. And some of those editorials could have been written yesterday or last week because we're still having those discussions after crimes against women these days. So to me, that was striking as well. And, and so I tried to, um, in, in the telling of the story, address those themes um, in, in a subtle way because I, I didn't want to go back as this 46-year-old, grey-haired old man and, 
and go and lump all of my judgment on my teenage self and everyone else in my life at that time. But I could certainly weave through um, some of the some of the wisdom that I have now, if I have any wisdom. Oh, don't sell yourself short. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose as well. Um, I suppose as well. I'd imagine that, that that entire experience of revisiting it and putting it on the page and, and learning all about the historical context of Frankston would make you view this particular place in a in a new light or maybe a new. I wouldn't want to say necessarily newfound respect or like newfound appreciation for the place that you've grown up and you've lived in. But I'm imagining it. You you definitely you'd look at it in a different in a different way. Yeah, I look at it. I, I look at the place around me now as a as a father, a married man who's got uh, three kids, and my my mum and dad still live in the in the same house. But uh, you know that I guess the suburb is smaller than what I remember. But um, I've all, always loved living here. We grew up in a, in a housing estate which was brand new to the area, and that was in the late seventies. And I was a I was a little kid then. We moved here when we were two. When I was two, when dad left the army. So growing up in this housing estate, I thought it was paradise. And and looking back, I still do. We were, houses were springing up on the street. Um, you know, we were playing, the frames of the houses were our monkey bars. And, you know, we'd, we'd set up jumps out the front on the on the footpath and, uh, you know, just to take the skin off our knees. And uh, it was a typical suburban uh, upbringing. And everyone was young. Even the new, even the school we went to was brand new, so everything was new, and even even the adults seemed young. It was a it was a youthful place without any any of the problems um, that I would grow up to then later learn was was quite normal in the world, and include including Frankston. Um, you know, I, my eyes were opened as I grew up, grew older, and saw the disadvantage around me, and and uh, saw that uh, people might be struggling with, with their families and all the rest of them. My dad used to call um, people in a very fond way, he called them battlers. And, uh, you know, with, there were battlers around as well. So, yeah, all of this sort of played into to, um, me living in a place that I, I adored living in. And, and that's, I moved away for a little while. Um, but when I, I settled down with my wife and we bought a home, it was, it was back in Seaford where I started. You had told me that when I was a kid that I'd spend my entire, virtually my entire life in this one suburb, and I, I might have um, said that's that's not going to happen, but um, it has. I, and yeah, I, I view the place as a great place to grow up, great place to raise kids, and uh, in that way, it hasn't changed all that much. But uh, you know, you sort of that's my experience, and I'm, I'm sure other people have vastly different experiences. Yeah, I, I imagine it, it, it's, you know, it, places are always, they mean so much to so many different people. And it's, yeah. it's interesting that we, that you, that, you know, that, that you view it in that, in that way now, which is really fascinating. Um, as, as kind of like a final question to ask um, about this book, and I feel like we've already kind of covered it um, a little bit, but I, I do, I do think a lot of readers are going to find this book really fascinating um, to to look at, examine, um, see, you know, how it, it compares to the to their own lives that, and their own journeys that they've experienced. What's the, I guess, what's what is the one message that you want readers to to take away from sitting down um, and reading Funky Town? I think once you write a book like this. Uh, 
you're best to, to leave it to the reader and, and they can take what they can from it. But I'm hoping that particularly if my sons read this book, they might pick up that it's better to be yourself than to follow the crowd. And um, you will, when you, you reach those teenage years, you're, you're open to influences of role models and friends around you and all the rest of it. But my advice would be to be yourself. And for me, that was, you know, that was not something I felt comfortable doing. I was, uh, you know, I, 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 I adopted a macho image. Um, I, I made out that I was, you know, that I was up for a fight and I wanted to drink and all, all those sorts of things. But that was driven largely by insecurity. And, and so, yeah, I think a takeaway from my experience might be that it's, and certainly by the end of the book, you, you reached, I've reached the conclusion that um, it's better if I take off that mask of bravado and just be myself. I open myself up to different relationships. Um, a whole new world would open up to me if I, if I wasn't um, restricted by this, this culture of, of masculinity. So that's perhaps the, the, the thing that I hope people take out of it. And, um, you know, if they learn a bit more about me along the way, then that's, uh, that's good too. And, and also, I hope they have a laugh because, um, you know, there's some funny things that, that happen there. Um, you know, I didn't take everything so seriously. And I did have some good friends and um, had some, some, uh, some good times along the way. I think that's probably another message that I haven't um, spoken much about is that the power of friends. Um, I've spoken to my friends since about their reflections on that time, that, that troubled time where we... We didn't achieve any greatness um, and, and their feeling was the same as mine, that, that we had good fun and we were able to get through anything because we had great friends around us. And not everyone's lucky enough to have that, I know, but, but, but uh, we were, you know, really great mates. And uh, I know now that you know, I, loved, I loved my friends and um, I was glad they were by my side even when I was uh, starting to veer off the rails. I'd love to keep talking, but unfortunately, we have run out of time. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. Funky Town is published by Affirm Press, and you can get your copy right now from booktopia.com.au. Now on to our interview with Paul Barbera. My name is Nick Wasiliev, and I'm delighted to be joined by photographer, designer, and more, Paul Barbera, to discuss his new collection of photography, Where They Purr. Paul, welcome. So to start us off, getting you to just tell us a little bit about Where They Purr. Um, well, I, I guess we'll just begin from the beginning, which is um, the, the original uh, project that has sort of been going for 13 years, and there's two books out published by Frame, is called Where They Create, um, which started actually in a, in a friend of mine's art studio in Rome. And, and so maybe like five or six years into that, um, which would basically be as I'm doing commercial work, I would you know, uh, look up a, an artist while I'm in Cape Town or wherever I happen to be, Paris or some, someplace. And I would uh, go off and shoot their studio and that would just be sort of a fun supplement to, to travelling for, for, for the job that I'm going for anyway. Um, and then I'd see cats. So I started, I was like, well, you know, this where they could be a lot of different things. So 
Um, I kind of went a little crazy and I registered where they occur and where they, where they die and where they live and where they, where they are homeless. I had all these ideas, but where they purr was just because I saw lots of cats and I like cats. And we have, we had, a, we have a cat technically is living with my uh, wife's parents in Perth, but we had a cat. Um, and so I would just start posting to Instagram and uh, that was sort of the, but no, no aspirations for it to be a book at all. Zero. I mean, that, that was the last project. And so, you know, look, you know, I, the thing with publishers is it takes a lot. It takes the perfect idea. What they say, what they say is like, um, um, you will find a great project will find the money or the money will find the project. And it's the same with the book. And so I've pitched a lot of ideas, you know, there's probably, I've got a few books out, but this particular one was not really an idea that, that I pitched per se. It was more that it was a conversation in passing. And after I'd pitched some other ideas based off the back of where they create that, um, she was like, well, you know, like animals. And I'm like, well, that's funny. Cause um, I've actually shot, so I've been shooting cats. She's like, no, oh, tell me more. And, um, my, to give credit to Queenie, who's my wife and uh, writer and uh, thinker and many other, many other uh, skill sets brought it together. Um, we put a pitch together and uh, like a week later, she's like, okay, yeah, I've got to sign off from, from the UK. We're doing it. I love that it started out based in like you, you were working in that social media space, like in Instagram and stuff and, and the interest came from there. So many photographers that we've like interviewed and stuff, they often, you know, they, they, have that uh, they use instagram hugely for that that profile that visual element yeah. how how vital or important was it for you in terms of determining the photography that you like to use particularly for books like what, what, like in terms of how did it kind of form the basis as well for the photography that you wanted to go with and the direction you wanted to go with for this book well that's um contrary to to something you mentioned earlier in a funny way well, actually, no, I mean, this, you, this might apply to what we just spoke about earlier, which was about uh, dabbling in lots of different things. I dabble in, um, so I will, I will shoot a lot of different subjects, but everything has, um, well, I, I strive towards making sure that everything um, has a sort of a interchangeable, similar feel, whether it be uh, shooting a cat or whether I'm doing... Um, you know, a shoot to Mr. Porter or a, a, a portrait of Tarawando or whatever it's my, whether it's a cat, it, it should all feel and sit um, under the same kind of umbrella, even though the subject um, and its purpose might, might be very different. So, uh, I mean, that's answering sort of the second part of your question. The first part, I guess, was, you know, how much, how important has Instagram been um in in helping determine that i mean it isn't isn't i kind of feel like i was at the first wave of the social media um more of the tumblr facebook um ilk and i actually didn't transition very very well to instagram i kind of just didn't use it for a long time and you know it, it became the main player but um where they per I don't know if I'm just trying to think of when I started because I actually had a website of where they per before there was an Instagram account. Um, but I guess in concept, the idea of being able to communicate directly with people that might like your work, um, I, I would credit you know uh, whatever whatever little mini successes I've had 100% just to the fact that I've been able to create my own 
uh, communicate, you know, and create and curate my own dialogue, right? And then share it with a potential audience. Um, and that's been great. It's it really uh, opened up, you know, I guess just a, a, a more a democratization of photography. Yeah, and it's it's great as well when people actually have show that interest um, uh, around, you know, the photography that you do. And I, I do want to talk about your love of cats um, uh, with this book. What was it actually like bringing felines into that, that studio photography setting? I mean, I'm assuming unlike a, you know, when, when photographing a human, you can tell them what to do and stuff, but cats can have a mind of their own. What, what was it like bringing cats into that setting? Did you discover things about cats, even though you are a cat lover, that you might not have actually known before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's fair to say that, like I said, I never set out to make a cat book. You know, the cats that I've been shooting were more incidental, right? They weren't like I was going out to search a cat. It wasn't a project per se. It was like, as I said, a side-side project to the main project. Um, so it's funny, but the book is not in chronological order. But um, And maybe this is just only my sort of own psyche, but... Um, from the beginning to the end, from the first shoot to the last shoot, there was such an evolution, at least in my own, or, or maybe it just got easier. So I thought that that, that I communicated um, or documented or got the essence of an animal, the cat, um, from the very first to the very last, because um, it took it took sort of a new, not new skill set, but a, another type of skill set, because you've got, they're, they're, they're either incredibly static, which means you can set up a lovely shot and compose it and sort of put them into place. Or, so they go from, you know, completely static to completely erratic. You know, they go from one side to the other. And so that's more akin to shooting an Olympics or uh, a sprinter. Or, or And so by the end, I'd sort of developed, uh, you know, I was working with three cameras, with three focal lens, and I'm kind of, you know, in a way, you got I got very good at predicting what where the cat would go, how to make it sit still, um, and and no, and treats don't work. It's not not that definitely was not something. It was something that everyone it was like, oh, we'll give them some treats, but you yeah, um, it was it was really challenging. I mean, there was blood spilt. I'm not, I haven't really spoken about it too much, but um, I I got attacks, um, I, I mean, I didn't have stitches, but I had to go and get a tennis shot. And uh, one of the owners also um, was, it was just an accident, you know, cats can be very skittish and um, he, he sort of tripped and the cat freaked out and then clawed his way out of, uh, out of his arms and caught his eye. Anyways, you know, blood has been spilt making this book. You would, you know, quite funny when you think about such soft, very little cuddly things. Um, but yeah, so uh, you know, it's um, definitely a skill set that I've developed. <laughs> it's a, it's amazing that you, the vibe I get is that cats really just do their own thing. It's yeah. like they, they often the sense that, that, that they just do their own thing. They you can't tell them what to do. Was there any like, did you learn any like uh, misconceptions that people have around cats? Like you were talking about treats and stuff earlier. People assume that you know just treat them like any animal, give them some food and, and they'll be fine. Yeah. Is that, was there one misconception that has been completely disproven? The, the misconception very easy, like I said, is, um, you, look, most cats are not trainable or at least it takes a lot of work to train them. But 
you can pat a cat into submission. Really? I think that's true of all, all domesticated um, mammals. Maybe that's true of us too and dogs. So like that was something that, you know, you, you just had to sort of go, okay, I want you to stay here. How do I communicate that? I'm going to give you lots of affection, but not all cats want affection. So, you know, every time you, you found a rule, it was broken by the next house and the next cat. Um, and just when you thought you've met your hardest cat to shoot, you know, you met the next cat that was even, even more skittish. I mean, there was, um, um, there was a house that had three cats, but the three cats didn't make it into the book because one of them was just, nothing worked, you know, it, it, it just because two were compliant didn't mean the third was. So, so that's where I, you know, you try every little trick in the book, but you know, you, at a certain point they time out. And that was, that's another thing that I learned is um, they're not infinitely going to be engaged in, engaged in the, in the making of your, uh, of your cat book. They'll often just decide that they've had enough and that they're just, so, so one cat, Humphrey, um, he ended up after, after we had, um, you know, it's been a solid four hours and he was very compliant. He was a rag doll. So picking up, putting him down, just stays there. At some point he was just like, done, I'm out. And he just hid between the pool and some reeds and uh, a metal fence. And there was no, there was no getting out. He was gone. Like, he was as good as under the house. So, you know, you also have to be, and again, I'm going to bore you with this last anecdote. Like I also, it's a bit like you need to be simultaneously con uh, uh, constructing your your image um, and and wishing the cat will be in its right place and stay in the right place, but at the same time not caring at all, not giving a shit because the minute you care, the cat can tell, and if you have a nervous energy the cats and animals pick up on that. So you've got to sort of find this sweet spot between never running, just walking fast. You know, never, never, never doing lots of sudden movements, but just work quickly. Because you only have this little tiny slither where, you know, and it wasn't all times. I mean, often there was one cat where she just said, here's the keys to the house. There's the cat. I'll be back in five hours. And I'm like, huh? And this cat was so, it was a big cat. It was a plus size cat. And, um, and she had like a three story house and I'd have to carry this cat, which again was quite happy being carried, but it was so, it was like a, it was like a sack of potatoes, right? Where it just flops when you pick it up. And I was carrying it up the stairs, trying to carry my two cameras. And it was like slipping, you're slipping out of your hand. And then he's getting uncomfortable. You know, if you, not that you're going to drop him, you'll put him on the stairs, he'll run back down, you've got to go the whole thing up again. So there were, you know, there were lots of little challenges like that, that you just sort of had to really map out, to systematically map out the shots you wanted to do. And, you know, and if a cat's not playing in one angle, you have to be ready to sort of switch to, you know, sometimes I might be, I don't know, I'm shooting on the couch, say behind me, and I'm all lined up, and then the cat, just had enough and goes underneath the, the day bed. So I have to quickly come around this way and then reframe and, and maybe I coax around a little bit, but maybe not. And then that becomes a shot. And that happened all the time. Yeah. 
it's it gets a real sense of very spontaneous in the moment photography. I, I want to I want to talk to you about the the spaces and the houses that you were shooting in, if I can, because I'm assuming that a lot of that would also, of course, there's the the cats and what the cats do, but there's also the actual space itself and how they interact with that space. What um what were some of your favourite houses in the book to shoot at? Um, look, I mean. It, Favorite in uh, there's 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 potentially the kind of the lights right is would be is, is one whole kind of category when you're when when you're at a space that just has um, good amounts of light the right the kind of light that I look for um, that's sort of its own thing then you have a house that's incredibly well put together architecturally that is in synergy with the furniture. Um, um, that's um, uh, Kennedy Nolan's um, place. Is it, is it Molly? Yeah, it's Molly. Um, like that's just incredible. That that place was just put together. That was a, um, a, a British blue. Um, but it can also be like um, Sarah, uh, Sarah Shiners. She is uh, an architect, and um, her house is not architectural in in that. Can, in that way that's been built from the ground up, but she's just, just like super styling and impeccable taste. And so the cat interacting with all those objects was just also equally amazing. Um, I mean, it was a bit sad because in fact, you only have six images per cat, right? I mean, it just worked out about six to eight images, um, maybe 10, but you know, six pages max or was it eight? Another six. Um, and, and, and so, we did no outdoors and some of the houses were like incredible the inside outside you know of course being australia but we missed you know i had to sort of cut edit all those out and it basically and one cat um uh, simon in tassie he was a, a a street cat and basically when i agreed to shooting the cat she just said i want you to know this cat never comes inside it's only an outdoor cat and this is a book about interiors, you know, I just have one shot outside, but not the whole thing. But I'm like, oh, the architects were really, really interesting, cumulus. Um, the house looked amazing. Um, I happened to be going to Tassie to shoot another cat. So I just had to make it happen. And she, a week before she said, I don't know what's going on, but Simon is now an indoor cat. So, and it was great because I had like, um, you'll see a, a shot with the, um, in Tassie, it's a, it's, I'm looking up through a double story uh, height uh, loft and there's a little cat sort of peering over or the cat running through the main space looking down. Um, so, look, you know, some of, the, some, of the, some of the houses were more challenging because either the combination of the light where the cat wants to sit um, and my ability to sort of, you know, you, you've got this contrast of, of macro and micro so um the the cat to, to understand the cat and feel the cat and sense the cat you need to be right up close but then it's not about interiors anymore so you pull right back and it becomes about the space and but then you don't see the cat and so to get this balance between the two was just that was the most you know do you do you have a shot that is a little dot of a cat like where's wally because that's, that's the other thing is that um at some point, I realised that I could get a shot of a cat in every single. So 
I could shoot a cat in every single shot. That was that became the the, the mantra, right? It's not to just shoot like oh, there's a beautiful corner of the room, and then there's the cat that's you know that was in that room but close up. No, no, every shot has a cat. To be like, where's Wally? I think it's a good way to go. It it, it certainly pays off in the book because it's it, you see that interaction of actual space with yeah. the, with the cat as well. I suppose as, as kind of a good ending point for us to end this this discussion um was it at the end of it all looking back and, and seeing all the work that has been completed and how the book has turned out how do you hope you know people will actually view their own spaces differently from picking up this book having a read of it and and seeing how these animals interacted with that space they might even have a cat of their own for example that interacts with their home space uh, in a similar way how do you hope people will view their spaces differently? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, we all um, pick up magazines and books and, well, I'll speak for myself. I'm not going to speak for everyone. Have house envy or interior envy. Um, and and maybe, maybe the nicest takeaway will be that someone said to me in the making of the book, you're never going to find anyone with nice interiors because people with nice interiors wouldn't have a cat because the cat would destroy it. And, you know, I think if you're a cat owner and you understand cats, you know exactly how, how to create a, a safe cat environment that the cat can release its cat instincts, its uh, feline instincts, and live in a space that is um, highly, highly curated and, 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 and crafted. And so I think the, the takeaway for me is, um, um, so where they create the, uh, the driving force behind it really, as it's developed over years, but the driving force is really to inspire, um, inspire people to just follow their own path and be creative, right? That anyone can do it. And, you know, here the working spaces, like, you know, go off and be inspired and, 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 and follow your own path. And maybe with this book, it's like, well, any, anyone can have a cat, no matter what kind of space you have, you know, um, and the cat will adapt and um, bring a lovely life force into the house. This, as uh, Jean Cotton says, you know, they are the living embodiment of my space. It's a great way to put it. And it's, it also, I, I hope, makes, you know, a, a standard space. People look at that standard space in a new way off the back of that. They actually see that, that space that they may occupy and view in a certain way, but they'll look at this and go, hey, look, this is, you know, that element where the, this, their cat can express themselves. They can do that in this space too, which can be a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, either you're in the castle, you're not. <laughs> um, thank you so much for your time today, Paul. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. So for our listeners, Where They Purr is published by Tamsin Hudson, and you can get your copy right now from booktopia.com.au. Thanks to Hugh Van Kylenberg, Paul Kennedy, and Paul Barbera. You can find links to all the books discussed today in our show notes or head over to booktopia.com.au. Stay tuned on Friday for our next podcast where we'll be discussing the books that we're reading at the moment. As always, thanks for listening and never stop reading.